0: The following lecture was delivered at the 14th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Washington, D.C., a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it, and we encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Yitzchak Shachet now presents his lecture, The Best Medicine. So do you know why Churches have such low attendances while many synagogues have literally record numbers each Shabbat. I've often seriously and genuinely wondered about this, and the answer actually came to me in a most peculiar way, in a most unusual way. It has nothing to do with religion per se, it's not about Judaism being more exciting and Lahabdil Christianity or something else being less exciting, etc. It has everything to do more with religious emphasis, and by that I mean where you put the emphasis in your particular place of worship. You see, several weeks ago, I had a particularly unique bar mitzvah in my shul. Now I can have an average of Baruch Hashem, 25 to 35 bar mitzvahs each year, which is practically every Shabbat. By and large, the shul is then very much filled to capacity. You can have near four or 500 people. But this one week in particular, by virtue of the father of the bar mitzvah boy's job, I had an unusually large proportion of non-Jews in attendance. The father, he was a headmaster, a principal, if you will, of a prominent non-Jewish school, and so he invited all the teachers of said school to come along to his son's bar mitzvah for a first time experience. And I delivered my speech in my usual style, which will be always upbeat, It'll be into disperse with humor and a takeaway message. And then there was this one teacher who came over to me at the Kiddush afterwards. That was very refreshing. I've never, and I quote, heard a joke told in a house of worship before. I didn't know you're allowed to do that. <laughs> Not two minutes later, another teacher. I wish our churches could be more like your synagogues. And a few moments after that, someone else That was the most upbeat sermon I've ever heard and I'm a regular churchgoer. Now to be sure, the bottom line is our shuls, our pulpits, are not intended to beat people's consciences into a pulp. As a congregant, if I was on the flip side, if I was on the opposite side, unless I have some masochistic tendencies, why on earth would I wanna go back each week walking out feeling more miserable than I was before I even walked in? The Torah tells us, vachai bohem, you shall live by the commandments. That's a fundamental principle in Torah. And in as much as that in itself is a specific principle and a particular directive in respect to our approach to mitzvah observances in the sense that we have to live by the mitzvah, not die by the mitzvah, etc., it also means in a broader sense that your Judaism, your faith, your observance should be alive, not... Downbeat. And if it's not alive, and if you're not feeling excited and you're not enjoying what you're doing, then frankly you're doing something wrong. You're going about it the wrong way. So I fundamentally believe, always in including humorous anecdotes in every speech, even if only to lighten the mood, and I have very good precedent for this. The Talmud relates, Rabbo, de Rabbo the great Talmudic sage, before he would begin any kind of discourse, teaching his large flock of spiritually thirsty and intellectually hungry students, before he would teach them, says the Talmud, he would always begin with some sort of anecdote, something light and humorous. Why did he do so? So Hasidism explains, in order to relax the heart, in order to open the mind, Because when you laugh, when you're relaxed, it broadens horizons. Our minds, let's face it, they're preoccupied with so many worldly concerns. Our hearts are all too often so heavy with plentiful anxiety. So how do you transcend that, even if only momentarily, in order to focus on the spiritual order of the day? Hence, rabba would begin with a light anecdote in order to captivate the attention, in order to put the mind at ease. And once relaxed, then the mind is more susceptible to absorbing whatever the message might be that rabba was looking to convey. Because the bottom line is, when you are in a happier frame of mind, you function better, you absorb better, you think better. And that's why I, as a rabbi, will use humor in liberal doses to captivate the attention of my audience. Sometimes the joke could be a classic anecdote. Sometimes it's built around some personal experience. Let's face it, everyone tries and remembers the jokes, even if they can't remember anything else you said. But that's why, personally, I will always go one step further. I don't believe in just telling a joke for the sake of telling a joke. I will always link the joke itself into the very theme there has to be some correlation between the anecdote between the joke and the actual theme of what I'm looking to convey or sometimes I'll just have a great joke and I will choose to build a whole speech a whole sermon around the actual joke because the way I figure people always try to commit the joke to memory so invariably something of the message will always remain linked with it as well I remember this joke and I remember what the rabbi said in connection with that particular joke which is why this session right now is going to be very different. Different at least to what you might be used to from me. Because we did some sad stuff yesterday, we did maybe some more highbrow intellectual stuff the day before, some analytical stuff the day before that. I'm gonna talk on three themes, all linked together, but interdispersed with loads of my favorite anecdotes, and of course, their messages. Why? Because I like to laugh, you like to laugh, it's good to laugh, what better a way to walk away from the retreat than laughing, so let's laugh together. If I was to ask you, what's the biggest problem facing our Jewish world today? What would it be? Intermarriage. Disaffiliation. sorry? Anxiety. Apathy. Apathy, okay. I I suggest to you, that we have an internal and an external problem. Internally, we have a problem that dates back 2,000 plus years. And I think a lot of the other things that were mentioned over here are all a consequence of that. And that is simply in respect to our avas Yisrael, our love for one another. Because fundamentally, if we demonstrated more love for others, then they would feel more compelled to remain within than necessarily go and marry out. Fundamentally, if we demonstrate more love to one another, then it would help people feel connected not necessarily feeling their senses of anxiety or disaffiliation or apathy or whatever else besides. We have a fundamental imperative to love our fellow Jews, regardless, as yourself. That's what led to the destruction of our temple, and that's why we have all the other social malaise as we encounter them in our post-temple destructive era today. There was an Irishman who walked into a bar in Dublin and he ordered three pints of beer on tap, sits down in the room, takes a sip out of each one in return. One, two, three. The bartender looks at him and says, hey, buddy, you know, the beers are going to go flat when you do that. Why don't you just simply take one beer at a time? You finish it, come back and take another. And another, he says, no, you don't understand. He goes, me and my two brothers, we used to do this very regularly. We used to sit together. We used to drink together. But unfortunately, one brother, he moved to Canada. The other one moved all the way to Australia. And so we have this... Ritual where we each go into our pubs in our own individual cities, countries, and we order three pints as though we're still sitting together, like in the good old days. And then one day the guy walks in and he only orders two pints, and he sits down and he starts to drink, and the whole place goes really quiet. And the bartender finally summons the courage, walks over to him and says to him, hey buddy, I'm really sorry for your loss. And he thinks and he says, what? Oh no, 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 no. These two, they're for my brothers. Me, I've given up drinking. You know, whenever there's terrible conflict in Israel, Jewish people band together in a most compelling demonstration of unity, proving how we are all essentially connected at the core. It's not like we are Americans who are also Jewish or Canadians who are also Jewish or Australians who are also Jewish. We are first and foremost Jewish, and then based on our geographical locations, we are either British Jews or Canadian Jews or Australian Jews and what have you. And the relevance of this is that when something happens in any one place, it's true, we feel it someplace else. Like a family member, however far away, if something happens to my brother or sister on the other side of the world, it doesn't lessen the impact, it doesn't diminish the tragedy. I don't believe there is a people so universally bound as the Jewish people. So we could be sitting in a bar, drinking alone, but my brother in Australia and my other one in Canada, it's as though they're drinking with me. Each time a rocket is fired, we feel the pain wherever we are. Each time a soldier is killed, we shed a tear around the world. Do you know when US lone soldier Max Steinberg was killed in combat, 30,000 people turned out for his funeral. Most who never even knew he existed the day or two before. Are there a people like that anywhere in the world? So the question is, why are we like that? Why are we still in this exiled state? Why haven't we managed to reverse the trend with gratuitous love? A few years ago, I was on a plane with my dear wife on a solidarity trip from London to Israel. And on the return with a group of, from our community, there was another group on the plane a group called Jacks. they were an elderly, a senior citizens type group. And there was this elderly woman sitting next to me and my wife on the LL flight. And she starts talking to me about how wonderful her rabbi is, how wonderful her community is, et cetera, et cetera. And I finally looked at her and I said to her, do you know the rabbi of the Mill Hill community? That's my community. And she goes, "Shachet." I said, yeah, that's right. She goes, I don't like him very much. <laughs> so my wife leans over and she says, Why not? And she says, well, I I read his column every week. He's quite opinionated. He can be quite controversial. And she sees me smiling from ear to ear. And she says, look, I'm I'm sorry if you have anything to do with him, but I really don't like him. (laughs) She gets up. She goes to the back of the plane at some point later on. My wife and I get up to stretch our legs. We walk towards the back of the plane. And the other elderly couple... When this woman was chatting with, clearly did identify me, because my picture appears on top of my column. And she stops us dead in our tracks, and she says, what's your name? So my wife, knowing what's about to go down, says, I'm Chani, and beats a hasty retreat. And I look, I said, I'm, I'm Yitzchak, and she says, yeah, but what's your surname? And I said, Shachet. At which point she looks at me and says, aha, and so you are. Are you the rabbi? and hoping to make light of an otherwise very embarrassing situation, I said to her, let's just say I'm very, very closely related to him. To which she said, oh good, as long as you're not him, because I really don't like him. (laughs) You know, it's good therapy sometimes to forget yourself, to drop the image and let other people tell you how it is. But the funny thing is we got along famously throughout this flight, this lady and I. She was so grateful for my help, putting her sweater up in the overhead compartment, taking it back down, sharing her how to use the remote control and so on and so forth, sharing a laugh or two, and then it occurred to me thereafter. It's amazing how people are so quick to jump to conclusions and form preconceived notions, judging and passing verdict without necessarily experiencing matters firsthand. For the record, I'm not suggesting she's wrong, but aren't we? Aren't we to one degree or another guilty of the same? Aren't we all too often so quick to pass judgment on other people? So quick to criticize, to pounce without looking beneath the surface? And why do we make these judgments? Mostly because we think we're better than them. You don't judge or condemn other people's actions unless you believe yourself to be better or more superior in that particular arena anyway. And frankly, most of the time, you're not. One person's strength is another person's area of vulnerability, and your area of vulnerability might in fact be that person's strength. And nobody knows with which strengths or vulnerabilities we came into this world other than God himself. Sometimes, therefore, it involves parking your ego, a little lessening of the self, putting yourself, as in the famous words of our rabbis, in the other person's shoes appreciating again that your strength may be their weakness and vice versa. There was a very famous rock star who purchased some really expensive material and he brought it to a top tailor in London on Savile Row. And he gave him the material and said please make me a suit. The tailor measures him from head to toe, measures the material and says sorry, I haven't got enough for you to make a suit. He travels later to his next concert in Paris, and he brings the material with him, and he goes to this top tailor on Champs-Élysées, and he brings it in, and he says, can you make me a suit? And the guy measures him from head to toe, and he measures the material. He says, I'm sorry, I haven't got enough here for a suit. And in spite of BDS, the the rock star then went to Israel to perform a concert there as well. And he goes to this old tailor in the back streets of Jerusalem, and he says to him, look, this is the material I have. I wonder if you can make me a suit. And the tailor measures it from head to toe, measures the material and says to him, I'll be able to make you a suit and I should have enough left over with which to be able to make you a spare pair of pants. The guy says, well, how does that work? In London and in Paris, they didn't even have enough for a suit and you can make me a spare pair of pants? Why? He says, because here in Israel, you're not such a big person. (laughs) You see, friends, that's our challenge, recognizing that in Israel, you're not such a big person. Have a little humility. Make space for someone else, even if you don't agree with them. Or pre- perhaps especially when you don't agree with them. And if we all do that, the world itself will look so much more a better place. True story. Gerald and Walter, both known to me. Residents at a place called Sidmer Lodge, which is literally right around the corner from my home. I've known Walter for a number of years, and Gerald a little bit more recently. They used to sit together, they used to hang together, but the falling out reached a point where Gerald was so upset that he would literally always turn his back on Walter. And when they would sit at a table, again, he would literally turn his chair so that his back was always to Walter. Family got involved, friends got involved, all to no avail. Then they turned to me, because I go in there as the rabbi, and they said to me, Rabbi, maybe you can do something, maybe you can help the situation. And having qualified just a couple of years earlier as a mediator, I thought to myself, I got this, and I tried once, twice, weeks went by, all to no avail. They gave me the time, they gave me the respect, but they didn't want to know. They were so deeply entrenched in their positions. Why, you wonder? What was it all about? Well, for one thing, Gerald is 91 years old and Walter is 97. Old people can be shockingly stubborn, who knew? No offense to anyone here, but there's nobody here 90, right? They don't teach you how to resolve conflict with nonagenarians in mediation school. And their fight, (laughs) it was serious. It was over soup, really, soup. Walter insisted that Gerald took his soup one night at dinner. And Gerald tells me, Rabbi, why would I take his soup? They serve plenty of it for everybody. Walter also insisted that Gerald had taken his chair. Rabbi, he says with a wry smile, barely shuffling on his zimmer frame, barely able to lift it, you think I can move his chair? And I was bothered by this. And it was a few days before Rosh Hashanah last year that I was driving home, passing by Sidmar Lodge, and I thought to myself, enough. It's before Rosh Hashanah, right here, right now, I've got to do something. So I went inside and lo and behold, Walter was literally sitting right there on a chair. And I said to him, Walter, it's going to be Rosh Hashanah. We have to make shalom. And Walter looked at me with all kinds of body language that indicated all kinds of resistance. And then employing the tactic of Aaron, the high priest and ultimate peacemaker. I said, Walter, you know, Gerald feels really, really bad. He really wants to make up. I think you need to give him a chance. And Walter looks to me in his face, genuinely softened, and he says, okay, if he wants to, then fine. So without missing a beat, I went to find Gerald and I subsequently determined that he was upstairs in his room on the second floor. And no sooner do I walk into the room as I'm there, sitting with his door open, and he says to me, Rabbi, what are we gonna do about Walter? Ah, a sign. And once again, I said, I just spoke to him, He told me how sorry he is. He really wants to make up with you. And he says, really, he really wants to? And I said, yes, really. He's downstairs waiting for you right now. Can we go to him? And Gerald got out of his chair and proceeded to shuffle down the hall behind me. It was a painstaking slow walk. I'm getting anxious. In my mind, there's only one thought going through. By the time we get there, Walter is gonna be gone. I have to admit. (laughs) My adrenaline is rushing. I was genuinely tempted to literally pick Gerald up and carry him down the stairs together with his walker. The elevator, which normally takes forever, was actually open on the floor, and I said, there's another sign. I knew I was good. And we went downstairs, and the two men, they didn't exchange a word. They merely embraced, well, as best as you can, between walkers and canes (laughs) without falling over, and they Continue to hold on to each other. It was such an endearing sight. And I spoke to both of them and I said, you should both have a happy new year and this shalom, this peace should be a real blessing for you both. And then the three of us embraced and the smiles on their faces radiant. I even caught a snapshot of it, which I subsequently posted on Facebook at the time. In fact, quite curiously, there was a middle-aged man, smartly dressed, standing nearby observing this, seeing the drama unfold, he just, patted me very endearingly on my back with tears in his eyes, no words spoken. I don't know what his story was, what was behind those tears, but he was visibly moved. Walter passed away peacefully in his sleep two weeks later. And I recall the words of the Balshemtov: A soul comes into this world for 70, 80 years just to do a favor for another. Maybe this was my purpose, my mission, I don't know. But life is short. There is no time, no room for the faribals and the bregis and all the petty squabbling or even the mega quarrels that we might otherwise perceive them to be. Think about any which way you might have become estranged from a loved one, a friend, or even just the guy in shul who once sat in your seat and you can't bring yourself to talk to him anymore as a result. I mentioned this yesterday to the Sinai scholars. My father, Olobosh Sholem, lectured extensively across the globe against missionary cults. And somebody once asked him the question, Rabbi, how will I know when I've walked into one of those Hebrew Christian temples, which will typically be disguised to look like an authentic synagogue, or when I've walked into the real McCoy? To which he replied, when you walk in and you are warmly greeted and you are embraced and you're given a book and a seat, then in all likelihood, you will have wandered into one of theirs. But when you are pretty much ignored, have to make your own way, and the only exchange you have is with the person who tells you, hey, you're sitting in my seat, then you'll know that you are in the real McCoy. You know, there's no greater means to ensure blessing in your life other than through peace, says the Mishnah. Think about the peace that you seek in your life. Think about the tranquility that you crave, and know in your heart of hearts that if there is somebody out there that you might have had whatever falling out with, you do want to reconcile. Feel in the depths of your soul that that other person really does want to make up as well. All it takes is a little bit of effort on both our parts. But you know what the underlying problem is? It's a breakdown in communication. We have lost the art of communication, our inability to listen to one another, to pay attention to one another's souls. Sure, I hear what you're saying, but am I truly listening? Harvey Ginsburg was convinced that his wife was going deaf. She refused to go to the doctor. She insisted there's nothing wrong with me. So he went to the doctor instead and he says, Doctor, what am I gonna do? The doctor says, it's very simple. Stand at the far back of a room in which she's standing and say to her, honey, I love you. If she doesn't respond, move several feet forward and repeat it again. If she still doesn't respond, move again forward and eventually you'll determine just how severe the problem is, so he does. The next day, she's in the kitchen, she's at the sink, she's doing the dishes, he stands at the back of the room, honey, I love you, no response. Moves forward a little bit more, honey, I love you, still no response. Stands literally right behind her and says, honey, I love you, and she turns around and says, "I mean, for the third time I said, I love you too. (laughs) You see, When others aren't hearing you, we react. We get upset. We fall out over it. The question is, is the problem really with them or is it perhaps with you? Because we live in a highly fragmented and compartmentalized world. Initially, we seem all separate from one another. Each of us with our own range of experiences and we have different exposures and life trajectories. That's why we never quite pause long enough to stop and hear what the other person is saying. There's a guy I know who just celebrated his 90th birthday, and I asked, how did you celebrate? He says, so Rabbi, much to my family's disappointment, my hearing has deteriorated over so many years now. So for my 90th, I splashed out really big and spoiled myself with a new state-of-the-art hearing aid imported from Denmark. It has restored my hearing to perfection. I looked at him and I said, wow, your family must be so thrilled, so relieved. And he says to me, I haven't told them yet. I just, sit th- I just sit there and I listen to their conversations. So far, I've changed my will three times. <laughs> we need to restore our hearing. We need to perfect our listening. We need to be in tune to one another's souls. Why do some singers touch people while others leave them detached and cold? because some sing from their voice box, while others genuinely sing from their soul. Beneath the fissured surface, there's an underlying unity which connects all the pieces. When we begin to properly communicate with each other, as diverse as we may be, we learn that we actually celebrate similar milestones. We're amused by similar idiosyncrasy. We shed the same tears, we suffer similar pains, we discover common threads, shared reactions, mutual interests which transcend our differences. Today, people say I love you in text message. They say sorry on Twitter. They ask after your well-being in an email. True communication is built upon true connection. It's not merely the process of conveying messages, ideas, or feelings. It's about creating a relationship, a connection, a bond between those who are communicating with each other. Imagine how people would react to you if they heard your spirit singing instead of your body whining, or they heard your beckoning soul instead of your hawking mouthpiece, or they hear your gentle words instead of your aggressive demands. Words from the heart, Enter the heart. A word that is lacking in sincerity and soulfulness will not resonate. True communication means that you say what you are and you are what you say, whereby all of your utterances become transparent channels for your soul's expression. And when we get that right, our personal relationships will be so much healthier, our interactions will be so much happier, and the world will look so much more a better place. And then, that will go a long way to being able to impact more on the next generation so there won't be those assimilation rates. It'll go a long way to dispel with all kinds of sense of loneliness, apathy, anxiety, and whatever else besides. That's insofar as the internal threat. Externally, of course, we have another real problem that has become most prevalent that everybody's been talking about over the course of this JLI and beyond, and it's the very real threat of anti-Semitism. You know the difference between a Jew and an anti-Semite? You ask the non-Jew, what do you think about Jews? And he refers to them. He says, oh, they're low-life, self-righteous, money-grubbing, world-dominating ingrates. Yeah, really? What about your lawyer, Cohen? No, oh, he, he's, he's an exception. He's clever, he's decent. What about Ginsburg, your accountant? Huh, he's a really nice guy, and he's, he's actually very so resourceful. And your cardiologist, Dr. Hyman, wow, he saved my life. I can't think about a bad thing to say regarding him. Ask the Jew, what do you think about Jews? My brothers, my sisters, my heroes—I love them all. And what about Cohen, the lawyer? That Ganef—have you seen his billing hours? He could sponsor the whole JLI for one year on account of what he charges me. And Ginsburg—Ginsburg Ginsburg walks into shul on Shabbos, I walk out. And Dr. Hyman—that man—he's such a schmendrik. I wouldn't let him within a hundred yards of my heart. The truth is that anti-Semitism is no laughing matter. The threat is real. And to say it's reared its ugly head once again is an understatement. The age-old mantra of they control the media, they control the economy, etc. It's all out there all over again. But then you have to ask yourself. So you'll say, but isn't it true? I mean, is it any wonder they hate us? Don't we control the economy? There's an 82-year-old Jew sitting on a plane between two burly anti-Semitic Texans on a flight from Dallas to New York. The first guy says, my name is Roger. I own 50,000 acres of farmland on which I raise 20,000 cattle a year. They call my place the Jolly Roger. The other man turns around and he says, my name is Frank. I own about 70,000 acres of farmland on which thereupon, I raise nearly 100,000 cattle every single year. And they call my place Frank's Fields. And the first guy looks over at the little man sitting in the middle with a keep on his head. And he says, well, what do you own, Jew. And the man looks up and he says, oh, I don't know, about 300 acres. Ha, that's not really a whole lot, is it? And the other man looks to him and mockingly says, so what do they call your place then, Jew? To which he simply replies, downtown Dallas. (laughs) So is it any wonder that they hate us, you'll say? this i told the other day about the traveling salesman who makes a deliberate point of going into a shoal wherever he finds himself always the nearest chabad house etc but he found himself in shropshire the backwaters of the uk where there isn't a shoal or a chabad house for a hundred miles so he does the next best thing and he goes into the local church instead sunday morning not many people around like we began with so he sits there at the back puts on his telescope, and fill and i'm in a place of worship and he's davening But as so happens, that particular morning, there's some special communion that's going on and people start coming in. And the the priest simply looks and sees and says, "Um, will all those who feel they don't belong please make their way to the exit? This guy, he's oblivious, he carries on davening. Little while later, more and more people are coming in and looking and casting curious glances and feeling uncomfortable and the priest says, will all non-Christians please make their way to the exit? This guy, he pulls his tallis over his head and he's rocking and he's rolling and he's oblivious to everything. And now the place is literally full to capacity. The priest can't take it anymore. All Jews leave now. Guy pauses, stops, looks around, takes in the scene, takes off his tulus, takes off his philin, rolls it up, folds it up, puts it under his right arm, walks to the front of the church, takes the statue of you-know-who off from the cross, puts it under his other arm and says, come on, Bobola, we're not wanted here. <laughs> So is it any wonder that they hate us? And the answer is, it is one of the world's greatest inexplicable wonders. Throughout the course of history, we have been told, wherever we are, you are not wanted here, all Jews leave. And there have been many scholars and many historians, including many Jews themselves, who have often chosen to focus and view this ongoing obsession with the Jew, not as something uniquely connected to Jews and Judaism, but always on account of a multitude of isolated events resulting from distinct circumstances. The fact that Arabs hated Jews before we were occupiers, they hated us before we were, before 1967, before settlements and settlers. Germans hated Jews because they were the scapegoat for a depressed economy. Christians hated Jews because we supposedly killed their God. Stalin murdered Jews because they were capitalists, while Europeans in the Middle Ages loathed the Jew because of his financial success. The hard fact is that anti-Semitism has existed too long and in too many disparate cultures to tolerate a claim that in each instance it's because of some distinct factor disconnected from being Jewish. It's not a unitary phenomenon, a coherent belief of ideology, to put it in the words of the book, why the Jews' economic depressions do not account for gas chambers. Jews have been hated because they were rich and because they were poor, because they were capitalists and because they were communists, because they believed in tradition and because they were rootless cosmopolitans, because they kept to them themselves and because they penetrated everywhere. Anti-Semitism is not a belief but a virus. The human body is immensely sophisticated and it has this incredible immune system which develops defenses against viruses. It's penetrated, however, because viruses mutate, antisemitism mutates. As such, there is little, if anything, at all, that we can genuinely do to eradicate it. Which then raises the question, if that's the case, what can you and I do about it? What ought our response be to this malaise that has plagued our people from time immemorial? There was an anti-Semitic inspector who came to the home of a Jewish farmer and he says, I'm here to investigate, and I have reason to believe there's unscrupulous activity going on in your fields. Listen here, Jew, don't be giving me a hard time. I have full authority to inspect wherever I want. And the Jewish farmer shrugs nonchalantly and says, do as you wish. I've got nothing to hide. Just don't be going over there into that field behind my house. And the inspector, now he's incredulous. How dare you tell me where I can or where I cannot go? And he pulls out his badge and he says, do you have any idea who I am? He shoves it in the farmer's face and he says, look at this badge, Jew. You see this badge? I am a city inspector with full authority to wander where I so please. Don't you tell me where I can and cannot go. And with that, he proceeds to deliberately march into the field right behind the house. And not three minutes later, there is this piercing scream and the inspector is running for his life towards the fence with a big raging bull in hot pursuit and he's yelling, help me, help me, he's going to kill me. And the farmer yells back, show him your badge. (laughs) The road ahead may be filled with challenges, but we have to rise to those challenges. And the only way to do so is by wearing our badge of Jewish identity with pride. Because when all that anti-Jewish, anti-Israel sentiment comes charging forward like a raging bull, don't shirk in the face of it. Don't run from it. Show it your badge of divine courage, of devout faith, and of spiritual fortitude. Some may be inclined to run. Some may be inclined to hide. There are rabbis in Europe who encourage their congregants to walk the streets with as low a profile as possible. Without the kippah, without anything, just look like one of them. And it reminds me of a colleague of mine, a rabbi in Manchester, who was standing outside on a Thursday morning desperately looking for that tenth man for a minion because there were only nine of them and somebody had to say Kaddish. And he's outside at seven o'clock on a cold, wintry morning in in the UK, in Manchester, and his tellus and his filling, flaying in the wind, and people are walking past, casting him this really curious and strange glance. And one guy finally stops. He says, what's the matter with you? Aren't you ashamed of yourself? Aren't you embarrassed standing out here like that? And the rabbi says, ah, you're the one I'm looking for. Come inside, I need number 10. (laughs) For me, and for you, it should always come down to this one story that I have told here before. I do some television with the BBC in London. And some time ago I met a guy when broadcasting there who told me how at the very beginning of his career he would always take his yarmulke off as he left Scholl to go to work when he pulled up to the office. And one day he met with a famous black news anchorman whose name is Trevor McDonald. Today he's known as Sir Trevor McDonald. Very well known throughout the UK. And they met, of all places, in the men's room. And Trevor turned to him and said to him, you're that guy from upstairs. Charles, and he says, I see you every single morning. I see you pulling up. You're wearing your Jewish cap on your head, but by the time you come into your offices, it's no longer on, can I ask you why? And he looks at me and he says, yeah, well, Trevor, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm Jewish, but I don't want to stand out. I don't want to look different. I don't want to, you know, this is the BBC after all, and I just don't want to stand out. At which point, Trevor turned to him and said, and remember, this is going back a good, good many years ago. I am the only black person in the building, apart from the cleaner. He says, how should that make me feel? When I walk into the boardroom, I am the only black man there and I immediately sense my difference. He then looked at Charles, pinched the skin of his own cheek and has added, you see this? It's who I am, it doesn't wash off. And those are powerful words. Because with the ever-increasing threat of anti-Semitism rearing its ugly head again, with the growing uncertainty of what the future holds, with Israel living under a constant barrage of terrorism, in the face of all of this, we Jewish people might sometimes grapple with our identity. Maybe we might sometimes feel a little bit intimidated. But we have to let those powerful words resonate with us. We have to remember that who we are never washes off. That the greatest, most forceful response to the pending threats that look out there is to stand tall and proud in your identity as a Jew. Because only when you hold your head high and you respect yourself and you believe in who you are and what you represent to the world, they will certainly take notice. We have to summon the Jewish chutzpah that has so personified our people through the ages. Stand tall, stand proud, speak truth with dignity and conviction, because when we do, the world listens. You know what Jewish chutzpah is? There was a Jewish man an yid, back in the 70s who would push his pretzel stand down Wall Street in Manhattan every single day with a sign on the side that said simply next to that warm succulent snack, pretzels, 25 cents. And every afternoon at lunchtime without fail, there was a smart looking businessman in his pinstripe suit who would walk out, put a quarter down on the pretzel stand and walk off without taking a pretzel. And he proceeded to do this day after day, week after week, month after month, for a very long period of time. And finally, one day he walks down, walks out of the office lunchtime, walks past the pretzel stand, puts down the quarter, starts to walk on, the old Jew starts running after him, excuse me, excuse me, because I know, I know. You wanna ask me why it is every day I walk down, I put a quarter, but I never take a pretzel. And the Jew looks at him and says, nope, I just wanted to let you know that the price of pretzels have gone up to 30 cents. <laughs> And that, friends, that's Jewish chutzpah. It's that precise audacity that has enabled us as Jews throughout the ages to reach outside our comfort zones, to extend clear of our natural limits, to live further than our wildest dreams and achieve beyond our our imaginable goals. And it's that same chutzpah that enabled Abraham to challenge God in defense of Sodom and Gomorrah that galvanized Moses to brazenly threaten God, as it were, in pleading on behalf of the Jewish nation. It's what encouraged Esther to risk her life and go before the King Ahasuerus. Fast forward several millennia, it's that same Jewish chutzpah that spurred Jews to pick themselves up from the ineffable events of the Holocaust and look to build again, to achieve greatness in the fields of science, medicine, technology, to become Nobel Prize winners, disproportionate to their number, to transform a desert into a land that blossoms with milk and honey and so much more besides. And it is precisely that same chutzpah which we must summon now. To strengthen our resolve, to channel our energies, like the street bender, to seek out opportunities regardless of what life throws your way to make this world again the better place that it was always intended to be. Don't be impressed from the world, said the Rebbe. Make your impression on the world. Having the chutzpah to stand up for your beliefs despite what the world might throw at you, goes to the very essence of what a Jew is. Indeed, it's only when you respect yourself that the world will respect you as well. And so friends, what is it that we need now in our lives more than anything else? You know what it is that we need to do in order to prevail against our enemies and find more peace amongst our own? We need a little bit more happiness we need a little bit more laughter. We need to remember about that woman who walked up to a wrinkled old man rocking frailly on a chair on his porch, but with a huge smile on his face, looking so happy, and saying to him, I couldn't help noticing how happy you look. What is your secret for a long and happy life? And he raised his hand very weakly to gesture, and he said, I smoke three packs of cigarettes a day. I drink a case of whiskey a week. I eat fatty foods and I've never exercised a day in my life. And she said, that's amazing. How old are you? And he said, 26. (laughs) Happiness and joy are not just conditions of the mind and heart. They have direct bearing on, as we said at the beginning, your overall disposition and the way you function, the way you think. We need to discover the joy of every day. We should recognize the joy within every single challenge, the joy of growth. The rest of life will come of itself. There are those who wake up in the morning, open their eyes, and say, Good morning, God. And there are others who wake up and say, Oh, good God, morning. That's very much up to you. The difference is one where you either despondently see every rose bush has thorns or joyously perceive how even thorn bushes have roses growing on them. And I remember there was this couple who went shopping in Costco. And after an hour, he finds himself in the drink section holding a whole case of beer. And the wife looks and says, what are you doing? This does not sound special. 24 bottles for only $10. You don't need it, she says. Really? And it's not something we can afford. It's not a luxury we can afford right now. Half an hour later, he's looking for his wife. He finds her by some beauty section holding a tub of deluxe skin cream. He says, what are you doing? She says, it's a great cream. It's only $20 and it'll make me look more beautiful to you. And he looks to her and he slowly removes the cream from her hands and he says yes, so will a case of beer and it's half the price. (laughs) Now that's the kind of joke at which point my wife will pick up and walk out, but okay. You know, people go to great lengths to look good. People go to great lengths to feel good. Sure, it would be great if we could all put ourselves in the dryer for 10 minutes and then come out wrinkle-free and three sizes smaller. But the bottom line is you cannot manufacture a feel-good factor. Money can't buy you happiness. To truly feel good, you have to be in the right frame of mind. We can choose to succumb to all the negative feeling and the anxiety that we talked about before that comes in the wake of whatever adverse experiences or you can appreciate that your attitudes and your moods are ultimately your choice. Apparently, the president of Iran, Hassan Rouhani, received a phone call the other week. Somehow, the guy got his number and he says, hi, this is Yitzhak from the Kibbutz Hachshara near Tel Aviv. We are not gonna be fooled by your sweet talk at the United Nations, we're not gonna wait, Obama gave you all the money, we know what you're doing, we've had enough, we intend waging war against you. Rouhani laughs and he says, look, I don't know how you got my number, but frankly, who's we? He says, well, there's me, there's my brother-in-law, Shlomo, who works with me, there's my cousin, Morris, and three guys from the local market. And Rani laughs again, he says, do you know that I happen to have a million soldiers in my army, and Yitzhak is quiet and he says, well, you know what, I'm gonna to have to call you back. <laughs> so the next day, sure enough, he calls back, Rouhani, I want you to know that we now have got two harvesters and a tractor from the kibbutz, and we've got another 15 guys from the local yeshiva. Rani responds mockingly, well, we have a 1,000 MiG tanks, 1,900 jeeps, and we are up to 1.5 million troops. Yitzhak says, I'm gonna to have to call you back. The next day he calls Rouhani, we're airborne. We've managed to convert Irving's light carrier with rifles plus another 16 guys, veterans noch, from the nearby old age home. And Rouhani sighs, he says, yes, we have a thousand surface-to-air missiles plus we're up to now two million troops. Yitzchak says, I'll have to call you back. The next day calls him back, he says, just want you to know the war is off. He says, with sarcasm dripping from his tone. He says, why is that? He says, because to tell you the truth, we spent all night talking about it and we realized there's absolutely no way we're gonna be able to feed two million prisoners. That's, That's Jewish optimism. That's Jewish confidence. That's Jewish faith. There are those who, when the challenge presents itself, they throw their hands up in despair when they cry at their predicament. They lament their fate. They simply give up before they even consider options. And then there are those, as should be the case with all of us who look at the bigger picture, who recognize that for as long as there's still something I can do about it, for as long as I still have blood running through my veins, I'll summon the strength and the resolve to live to fight another day. The philosopher Nietzsche famously said, the world is beautiful, but has a disease called man. And whilst there may be some men With diseased mindsets, ideologies, and attitudes to life, Judaism teaches us that the only difference between those who look to build and those who seek destruction lies in the way that they perceive and see the world. The ability to see beauty in the world is the beginning of our moral sensibility because what we believe is beautiful, we will not wantonly destroy. The world we truly desire is good. It can be one. It exists. It's real. It's possible. It's yours. Believe in the beauty of other people, believe in the power of love, believe in the future, and above all else, believe that if only we want to, if we really, really want to, we can make Mashiach come. Because there will yet come a day, real soon, when our son Rounani will call President Trump and say, Mr. President, I had a dream last night. Oh, yes? Tell me about your dream. I saw flags flying all over Washington. Oh yes, Trump will say. And what does it say on these flags? They had the emblem of the Islamic Republic of Iran and the words Allah Akbar on them. Trump will slam down the phone. And a few days later, he will call Rouhani back and he'll say, I had a dream last night. And he'll say, yes, Mr. President, tell me about your dream. And he'll be telling him there there were flags flying all over Tehran. Yes, Mr. President. And what did it say on these flags? And Trump will say, I have no idea. I can't read Hebrew. (laughs) Only, of course, friends, it won't be just a dream. It is the long sought after Jewish dream that will finally become a reality for once and for all forevermore. May we merit that day speedily. Thank you very much. It's been great sharing this whole week with you. And I wish you all the best. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and torahcafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.